Welcome to the show, folks. We've been going through a synchronized study of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And last time we covered the midsection of Jesus' Sermon on the Mount. We started in chapter 6, verse 1, and made our way down to verse 21. We used verses 19, 20, and 21 as sort of a bookend to go between our last session and this session where Jesus says, Don't lay up for yourselves treasures upon the earth where moth and rust corrupt and where thieves break through and steal. But instead, lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust can corrupt and where thieves do not break through and steal. For where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. And I want to use that as the springboard for this session because this is a famous verse that gets quoted a lot. And it gets ignored a lot. How does that happen? How does a famous verse get quoted all the time while being ignored? We'll get into that. But folks, once you peel the onion back a little bit on the meaning behind this verse, in my opinion, this is more exciting than John 3.16. It's not all that exciting by itself, and that's how it gets quoted. But in the context of the rest of Jesus' sermon here, folks, this is, this is astounding. We used it as a bookend to go between our last session and this one because Jesus sort of does that himself. He started hinting at this idea of laying up treasures in heaven with chapter 6, verse 1. You don't notice it too much because he doesn't tell us what those treasures are. He just uses the phrase, your reward of your Father, which is in heaven. He uses that phrase but doesn't really tell us what that reward will be. And it's because we don't know what those rewards are that the emphasis, when we read those passages of Scripture, the emphasis isn't so much on the treasure, but on the action of what we're supposed to do or what we're not supposed to do in order to gain those treasures. But then, towards the end, Jesus tells us why. He tells us why we're to do those things. It's to lay up treasures in heaven. And that's where we left off last time. And then from that, Jesus goes into it even further. And those passages of Scripture that we saved for today's session, folks, they're incredibly famous. And we've all heard them over and over again. But once again, they're always taken out of context. We hear those famous verses by themselves, not in connection with everything else that Jesus is saying here. And when you read through the Sermon on the Mount, you'll probably feel like you've just read about a hundred different Hallmark cards. And it's because these verses are singled out that we really enjoy hearing them, but we don't really apply them. Because deep down inside, folks, and I mean if you were really honest about this, if you're really honest with yourself, even as Christians, deep down inside, we really don't believe these verses. We've heard them taken out of context. We like hearing them. We may have even tried them at one point in time or another and then forgot all about them because they didn't work like we thought they would. That's because we're leaving out parts of the formula to make them work. You've got to put all this together to get it to work. So let's go back and just read real quick what Jesus said that leads up to the verse that we used as a bookend to catch up, and then we'll continue our commentary where we left off. But real quick, just as a reminder, Jesus is addressing his followers He's addressing those who are already saved. It's taken for granted that you're already saved and have made a commitment to him. Okay? So if you're saved, if you're a follower of Christ, this is for you. Chapter 6, verse 1. Jesus says, Take care that you do not give your alms before men to be seen. Otherwise, you have no reward of your Father which is in heaven. Therefore, when you do give alms, don't sound a trumpet before you as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and in the streets that they may have glory among men. Truly I tell you, they have already received their reward. But when you do give alms, don't let your left hand know what your right hand is doing so that your alms may be given in secret and your father which sees this in secret will reward you himself openly. 
And when you pray, don't be as the hypocrites are, for they love to pray standing in the synagogues and in the corners of the streets, that they may be seen of men. Truly I tell you, they already have their reward. But you, when you pray, enter into your closet, and when you've shut the door, pray to your Father in secret, and your Father which sees in secret shall reward you openly. Don't use vain repetitions as the heathen do, for they think they'll be heard for their much speaking. Therefore, don't be like them, for your Father knows what things you have need of before you ask Him. Therefore, after this manner, pray like this. Our Father who is in heaven, holy is your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And don't allow us into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. For yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. For if you forgive men their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you forgive not men their trespasses, then neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. Moreover, when you fast, don't be as the hypocrites of a sad countenance, for they disfigure their faces that they may appear to be fasting before men. Truly I tell you, they already have their reward. But you, when you fast, anoint your head. Wash your face, that you don't appear to be fasting before men, but to your Father which is in secret. And your Father which sees in secret shall reward you openly. Don't lay up for yourselves treasures upon the earth, where moth and rust corrupt, and where thieves break through and steal. But instead lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven, where neither moth nor rust can corrupt, and where thieves do not break through and steal. For where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. And there it is, that famous verse where we left off last time. It's one of those well-known verses that we really don't think about. How do we lay up for ourselves treasures in heaven? How does that work? Because I always heard that you can't take it with you, right? That's what I always heard. But Jesus is saying right here, that's not completely true. There are treasures that you can actually send on up ahead of you. And it's interesting that Jesus would use the phrase, lay up for ourselves treasures, as though it's literally something that's piling up, something that we would consider a treasure, and it's not for anybody else. This isn't some kind of metaphor where technically it just means God will be pleased and you'll get good marks on a report card that hangs on God's bulletin board at the head of the class. No, that's not what he said. He's talking about literally laying up treasures. And these treasures aren't for anybody else. They're not even for God. They're for you. It says laying up for ourselves treasures. How does that work? How do we lay up for ourselves treasures in heaven? Well, let's look at it another way. How do we lay up for ourselves treasures upon the earth? How does that work? First of all, it takes time. Whether we're talking about a DVD library, the perfect house, the perfect backyard, video game collection, MP3 collection, closet full of clothes, whatever it is, it takes time. You buy each little piece of treasure, one piece at a time. You buy a couple of CDs after a paycheck, no big deal. But after a decade or so, you've got yourself a pretty nice CD collection. And I think all of us have that internal drive to build an earth-based sanctuary of everything we want. It takes decades to build, but we do it just one little piece of treasure at a time, enjoying each piece as we get it and adding it to the treasure chest of our sanctuary. That's how we lay up for ourselves treasures upon the earth. But Jesus points out something here that we don't really think about too much until we start to get older, and that's the fact that all of that is temporary. He says, moth and rust corrupt it. In other words, it wears out with time. You know, I spent the entire 80s and the early part of the 1990s, well, actually both the 80s and the 90s, two whole decades, 
I bought professionally published tapes by singers and groups. I bought blank tapes to record off the radio, and I was so proud because I had around seven or eight tapes of radio music for each year. I had the 80s recorded as it happened. I was proud of that, but it's all crap now. Those old tapes have faded. The sound is muffled. It's a huge loss. Now I'm trying to replace all of it with store-bought CDs and MP3 downloads, but I'll probably discover one day that that, too, won't be permanent. And you can apply this to everything. And let's just say for the sake of argument, you do find treasures that don't fade or corrupt in time. They might not, but you will. And it'd just be my luck that after I replace all of my 80s music with store-bought CDs and MP3 files, just about that time, I will probably start to lose my hearing. That's a huge investment of time and money into something that's so temporary. So Jesus is saying, hey, do the same thing you've been doing for treasures on the earth, but do it for treasures in heaven. Lay them up in heaven instead of the earth, because on the earth, moth and rust corrupt it, and thieves can break through and steal. But that's not the way things are up in heaven. So lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven. Well, how do you do that? There are several ways, lots of ways to do that. We've always heard the saying that you can't take it with you. Materialism, money, objects, things, stuff, when you leave this world and enter the next one, you can't take it with you. But did you know, if you think about it, there are some things you can acquire here on the earth that you can take with you. Do you know what they are? Think about it. This is sort of a trick question, but think about this. Try to stretch your imagination. We've talked before about how this world and your body is nothing more than old hardware. The real you is software. When you leave this world, it's only your software that's leaving. It's being uploaded into new hardware that's in heaven. The scientists tell us that everything we've ever seen, heard, or experienced from the moment we were born to the present day is perfectly recorded onto the hard drive of your brain. We have a problem with instant recall. Sometimes we have to try real hard to remember something, but that's just a hardware problem. We're going to get new hardware. The brain we have now isn't built to utilize instant recall, but everything we've ever seen, heard, or experienced from the moment we were born to the present day is perfectly recorded onto the hard drive of our brain. That's software. It's a part of who we are. It's all in there. And all of that, minus the sin virus, will be uploaded into heaven with you. If your memories and your acquired knowledge and wisdom is going to heaven with you, then that includes the memories, the knowledge, and the wisdom of interpersonal relationships with people. When you build a relationship with another Christian, you're investing in something that's eternal. You may part ways while you're down here on the earth. You may have to move to another town and never see them again, or they may die before you. But you did know them, and they knew you. And whatever you built with that other Christian is something that will last forever. Your relationship with your toys, whatever they are, they won't last forever. When we get to heaven, we're going to get new toys that surpass earthly toys, so we won't even miss those earthly toys. If we could take them with us, we would probably throw them away once we got there. But invested time and effort put into any relationship with another Christian is something that will last forever. Think of all the Christians you've known since you were a kid that have died, that are now living in heaven. People in heaven who right now as we speak, they remember you. They knew you when they were here and will know you again. Jesus said, where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. And as I've gotten older, the more I've begun to realize that after all of the years of collecting movies and CDs and games, what my real treasure is, my real treasure, has become treasure in which not only can I take it with me, but it's already there. 
My grandmother's been there for five years now, and my grandfather's been there for ten. And I'm so glad that I invested the time that I did with them while they were still here, because that investment is something that cannot be stolen or lost or corrupted by the degradation of time. But think about all of the Christians your own age who are still here. Those relationships will last forever. So any investment you make towards another Christian, be it time, be it a helping hand, all of those little investments, they add up to something that's eternal. Now, each little piece by itself, you probably don't think it's worth much, but that's the same thing as after a paycheck, you buy one CD. It's no big deal. It's one CD, but it's piling it all together. And when you make those investments towards heaven, those are investments that are piling up that will be eternal. But there's another relationship you can invest in that's eternal, and that's your relationship with Jesus Christ. When we first get to see Him with our own eyes, we're going to be surrounded by the fulfillment of dreams that never came true on the planet Earth. Our physical bodies are going to be brand new and perfect without flaws. All of our loved ones are going to be around us, and they too will also be in brand new and perfect bodies without flaws. And surrounding us will be a new plane of existence that's everything the Earth was plus everything the Earth could have been if Satan hadn't gotten in the way and screwed things up. And with this will be the internal awareness of knowing that all of this is so good that we really don't belong here. How is this made possible? And then we'll see Jesus Christ with holes in his hands and scars on his face, which remain as a physical reminder to us of how much we're loved. And we're going to wish we had gotten to know this awesome God before we got to heaven, not out of shame or fear, but if we had only known what we were missing out on. Can you really invest in that relationship by listening to a sermon once a week? I don't think so. One of Jesus' titles is the Word, right? That's what John called him in the first chapter of his account of the gospel. That's also one of the titles for the scriptures. Until we see him face to face in heaven, that book is the closest we can get to know him. The more you know about that book, the more you know about him. Therefore, the more time you spend in that book, the more time you're spending with Jesus getting to know him. The more money you spend towards knowing that book, then the more money you're spending towards knowing him. In other words, don't be satisfied with the one copy that you have that your mother gave you that her mother gave her. Keep that, but go out and buy a new one. Buy two or three. Get some in different translations so you can really know it. Be obsessed with knowing that book. If you find a reliable translation, and I do mean a reliable, trustworthy translation that you really like, buy a few copies of it. Get one in paperback for your car. Get another one for your bed. Buy a notebook to scratch notes in. Or maybe keep an MP3 journal on your PC. Make an adventure out of it. Don't be satisfied with somebody else's teachings from it. Those are great. But what do you think God would tell you personally without the presence of a middleman? Ever wonder? Find out. When we finally get to meet Jesus face to face, and that day's coming, folks, don't you want to feel like you know him already? Or do you want to just know of him because of what other people have told you about him? Go out there and blow some money on some Bibles. Buy several copies in different translations so you can really know him. Or maybe you just want several to lay around the house so you'll always be near one so you can just grab it when the Holy Spirit puts something on your heart. Or maybe you just want to feel free to highlight and scratch notes in one and buy another one just in case you get carried away. You know, whatever the reason. Is that book a priority? It's an investment that's available to you that's eternal. Chuck Messler likes to make the joke, if you knew that some political commentator that you admire was coming to your Barnes & Noble bookstore and you were going to have the opportunity to maybe spend some personal time with them, you would probably go out and buy a copy of their latest book to read it and catch up. 
Well, folks, all of us really are about to meet Daniel, Isaiah, Moses, Peter, Matthew, Paul, and you want to be able to go right up to them and say, hey, I read your book. Heaven is a real future, and we can invest in that future while we are still here on the earth. The primary way is to know the king, and he laid everything out for you in a text that we so passively call the Bible. And do the things that are in there, not because you're scared of God or afraid you're going to miss out on heaven. That's not even a concern for us. Heaven is a real future for all of us, and you can't take that future away. But you can invest in that future, and any investment towards other Christians has eternal benefits. But then there are also rewards, and this is what Jesus is getting into here when he says, lay up treasures in heaven. Jesus didn't tell us too much about what all of those rewards are, probably because we don't have a common frame of reference to understand what they are. Jesus trying to describe for us what those heavenly rewards are would be like you or me trying to explain earthly rewards to an amoeba. Just no common frame of reference. But you can lay up treasures in heaven. They all come from the Father, we know that, but apparently they are earned. And all throughout the Bible we get little glimpses here and there of certain actions that result in the giving of a reward. I just recently found out not too long ago that there is a specific reward given to those who look forward to the rapture. That blew me away. I thought, well, there's at least one reward I know I'm going to get. Another reward is specifically reserved for those who are killed because of their faith in Christ. I don't know if I want to earn that gift. But what you don't often hear about the Columbine Massacre is that a lot of the children who were shot were first asked, Are you a Christian? One girl in particular stared her killer down in the face and said with pride and without fear, Yes, I am. And those were the last words she ever spoke on this earth. I'm looking forward to meeting her. She wasn't a Christian because it was politically correct in a churchy environment where she could impress her peers with her piety. She gave up her life because she was more proud of the one who saved her than she was proud of her own life. She was in love with him more than she was in love with her own life. But do you notice a consistent theme behind all of these little deeds and actions that result in a reward? How did Jesus start off chapter 6 before leading up to all of this? Don't do these things to be seen by men, but to be seen by God in secret, so that the Father which sees in secret shall reward you openly. All of these deeds and actions are motivated by a love relationship with the Lord. I don't look forward to the rapture because it's the right thing to do. I can't help it because I know who's coming to get me. All of the deeds that result in rewards are deeds that are motivated by your personal relationship with the Lord. And that relationship is built, strengthened, maintained, and increased by a steady commitment to knowing His Word and following His Word. And then everything you do is just for Him. There's no religion involved here, folks. This is all about keeping things real between you and the Father which I find extremely fascinating because that seems to rub against the grain of everything we thought we've been taught concerning Christianity. And all throughout the Gospel account, Jesus personally goes out of his way to avoid religious ritualism and ceremonialism, while at the same time proclaiming himself to be the one who's personally fulfilling every last bit of the law. I mean, that's folks, this is incredible. Every jot and tittle, he says. He's personally taking full responsibility for fulfilling the letter of the law, while at the same time going out of his way to detour ritualism and ceremonialism. He told the woman at the well, A time is coming when you will neither merely worship the Father in Jerusalem, nor merely worship the Father in this mountain. God is a spirit being, and he desires to be worshipped in spirit. That was the biggest debate back then, folks. Can you really worship the Father without going to Jerusalem? Today, the debate would be, can you really worship the Lord without going to a building with a steeple on it? Jesus would say, you can, but location doesn't matter. 
God is a spirit being. He desires to be worshipped in spirit. In other words, all of these religious trappings take away the reality of it. It gets in the way. It doesn't have to, but it can. You can do the right thing for the wrong reasons. If you're doing it to impress man or hold to some religious obligation that man has bound you to, then it's not real. But when it is real, that's when you're making investments towards your future in heaven. And that's every bit of this in a nutshell, folks. If you want to invest in your future in heaven, then you need to invest now in your relationship with the Lord and his word. By doing that, then everything else falls in place. And Jesus is going to continue to expound on this in connection with laying up for ourselves treasures in heaven. Let's keep moving. Jesus says, don't lay up for yourselves treasures upon the earth, where moth and rust corrupt, and where thieves break through and steal. But instead, lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven, where neither moth nor rust can corrupt, and where thieves do not break through and steal. For where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. The light of the body is the eye. If therefore your eye be single, as in single-minded, then your whole body shall be full of light. But if your eye be evil, your whole body shall be full of darkness. If therefore the light that is in you be darkness, how great is that darkness? Now folks, you might wonder why single-mindedness has got anything to do with being full of light. You know, single-minded about what? But Jesus explains what he means right here in the following verse. He says, No man can serve two masters. For either he will hate the one and love the other, or else he will hold to one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and mammon. Now, folks, the word mammon there is an Aramaic word for money, or more specifically, wealth. It's not the wealth itself that's evil, but it's the love of wealth or the holding of wealth. Jesus made those two distinctions in there just in case anyone might think, well, I don't love wealth. Yeah, but are you beholden to it? Be real careful here to notice something that is extremely, extremely important. It's a lesson that I personally didn't fully appreciate until recently. And in some ways, I'm still learning this. It's a tough lesson. Jesus is not saying that you shouldn't serve God in money. He's saying that it can't be done. It's impossible. And don't fall into the trap of thinking that this is just about wanting to be rich. Well, I, I'm not greedy. I'm just trying to pay the bills. If money is a priority in your life for any reason, then God won't be. If God is a priority in your life, then money won't be. I used to fight that because I really wanted the best of both worlds, and I thought I could do it. I wanted to invest in heaven and earth at the same time. All of us try to juggle them, but we can't. The more we try to juggle both, the more that both eludes us. It can only be one or the other. It can't be both. Because everything is either in your hands or God's hands. can't be both. No matter how hard we try to think it is. And I used to think it was, folks. I really did. That when you put your life in God's hands, because he loves us, he lets us steer his arms. Boy, was I wrong. He does to some extent, but that's usually when we just think we're steering. It's kind of like when your dad sat you in his lap while driving a go-kart. He's the one driving, but occasionally it just so happens that we turned the steering wheel the same way he did. So we think we're driving it, but we're not. And one of the traps that all of us, I think, are very susceptible to falling into is this idea that by giving your life to Christ, then you have more control over your life, and you're going to get what you want out of life. We hear that taught. But folks, that concept is not biblical. If your life is in God's hands, then isn't your finances in his hands too? See, if you put your life in God's hands, but keep the finances in your hands, then guess what happens? 
Our life really isn't in his hands, is it? And you'll sense that. You'll feel it. And then you'll get mad at God because you feel it. I remember several years ago, living from paycheck to paycheck, all the bills were being paid, but nothing more. I had no future. I had no reason to think my career, if you could call it that, had any brightness to it. And I remember looking around at other opportunities that seemed to just fall in everybody else's lap, but they always eluded me. And I couldn't figure it out. These people weren't saved. They weren't trying to be obedient to God, and yet everything just fell in their lap. And here I am, a good Christian. What's going on? But I remember finally just just letting God have it one day. I said, Lord, if people who don't even attempt to serve you can find everything they want out of life, then why can't someone like me, who does serve you, find everything that I want in my life? God, everything would be just great if you'd cooperate. And then suddenly after I said that, I heard the arrogance, I heard the ingratitude, and the gross stupidity of what I just said. I mean, it's just riddled with oxymorons, folks. Since I put you first and gave you my life, I should get what I want out of my life. Folks, that doesn't make any sense. That's like giving somebody your car, actually signing it over to them in their name, giving it to them, and then saying, well, since I gave you my car, I should get to keep it in my garage and drive it whenever and wherever I want to. It's your car now. I had it put in your name. It's yours. But only you can drive it where I tell you to drive it, and you have to allow me to drive it whenever I want to drive it. And at night, it's got to be in my garage. But it's your car now. Well, folks, we wouldn't say that to anybody we gave our car to, but we will say that to God about our lives when we give them to Him. I certainly did. And it all fell under the trap of really thinking I could serve both God and money. You can't do it. And the more money eluded me, the more I got mad at God because it eluded me. And then when I did occasionally get some bonus, some really big financial treat, it didn't have the feeling that God's blessings usually have because he didn't really give it to me. See, I had to get it myself. I earned this. This isn't a gift from God. I earned this. And then the second thing that popped into my brain was, well, this nice little treat isn't going to last very long. This is just some fluke. I'll probably wind up in a car wreck next week that takes every bit of this. That'll be my luck. So even when I did get some money, I still, you know, it, it was never enough. And I was still mad at God because it wasn't enough. And I wasn't trying to be rich, folks. I was just trying to make ends meet comfortably. So don't fall into the trap. This is about wanting to be rich. Well, it's, you know, your love of money. The more money is a concern, the more it preoccupies our mind, the more it affects our decisions, and the more it becomes a greater need to us than a relationship with God, no matter how great we already know our need for God is. But the more God is a concern, the more He preoccupies our mind, the more He affects our decisions, and the more He becomes a greater need to us than money, no matter how great we already know our need for money is. Isn't that something how that works? Now, of those two needs, which one do you think will elude you more? Both of them will elude you if you try to get both. No man can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or else he will hold to one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and mammon. Let's continue. Jesus says, Therefore I say to you, take no thought for your life, what you shall eat, or what you shall drink, nor yet for your body what you shall put on. Is not the life more than meat, and the body more than clothing? Now where it says take no thought for your life, it's talking about thoughts of concern, worrying. Worrying leads to fear, and fear, believe it or not, folks, is demonic. 
Did you know that fear is a demonic attack? You know how I know that? Because Romans chapter 8 verse 15 says that God does not give us the spirit of fear. So if God doesn't give us the spirit of fear, then where does that spirit come from? Ephesians chapter 6 tells us that fear is the weapon that Satan uses to target our footsteps. Because one of the pieces of the armor listed in the armor of God laid out in Ephesians chapter 6 is in verse 15, where it says to shield your shoes with the gospel of peace. Peace is the shield against anxiety. And Philippians chapter 4, verses 6 and 7 tell you how to get that peace. It says don't fret or have any anxiety about anything. Be anxious for nothing. But in every circumstance and in everything, by prayer and petition, definite requests with thanksgiving, continue to make your wants known to God. And the peace of God, which passes all understanding, shall mount guard over your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Peace of heart and peace of mind is what we always want. You get it? By taking every circumstance and everything to the Lord in prayer. Included with that is thanksgiving. If you leave that part out, then this won't work. Afterwards, the peace of God, which passes all understanding, will guard over your heart and your mind. And that way, you'll be shielding your footsteps from demonic attack. Fear and anxiety won't influence your direction. The peace of God, which passes all understanding, will be influencing your direction. Let's continue. Jesus says, Therefore I say to you, take no thought for your life, what you shall eat or what you shall drink, nor yet for your body, what you shall put on. Is not the life more than meat, and the body more than the clothing? Behold the birds of the air, for they don't reap, they don't sow, nor do they gather into barns. And yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not much better than they? Which of you, by taking thought, can add one cubit to your stature? And why take thought for clothing? Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow. They don't toil. Neither do they spin. And yet I tell you that even Solomon in all of his glory was not arrayed like one of these. Wherefore, if God so clothed the grass of the field, which today is and tomorrow is cast into the oven, shall he not much more clothe you, O you of little faith? Therefore take no thought, saying, What shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or with what shall we be clothed? For your heavenly Father knows that you have need of all these things. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things shall be added unto you. The kingdom of God is what, folks? The Father's throne. That's heaven. That's our future. It's real. And it's coming. Invest in that first. Because it's the only thing that's certain. Everything else is up for grabs. It's uncertain. We have no control over it. Any control that we think we have over it is nothing more than an illusion anyway. And it's temporary on top of everything else. Invest in heaven. It's a solid investment. Jesus is saying, you do that, then everything else will fall into place. All of your needs and everything that comes with that. And folks, I've challenged that. I have made some of the craziest, illogical decisions because I trusted in this verse. And I can tell you, it's 100% true 100% of the time. But this is kind of tricky because it won't work if you're looking for it to work. Because if you're looking for it to work, then you're still allowing those needs to rule over you, which means you really aren't seeking first the kingdom of God. Like I said, this is kind of tricky. But if you seek first the kingdom of God, then all of your needs will be met, plus a little over the top now and then. 
Now, you might not always approve of the channels that God uses to fulfill those needs, but that's God's problem, not yours. Especially if you really are seeking first the kingdom of God and His righteousness. Folks, I can't tell you how easy it is to accidentally fall into the trap of thinking you're seeking first the kingdom of God when you're really seeking the kingdom of man. If you're seeking first the kingdom of God so that He will add unto you all these other things, then it won't work. Actually, it will work, but you won't recognize it because you're too busy looking around you to see if he's meeting all of your needs the way you want him to. And if you're doing that, then you really aren't seeking first the kingdom of God. You're still giving thought to the needs. We're going to see an example of this later on when Jesus walks on water and then calls Peter out of the boat to walk towards him. And Peter actually does it, folks. As long as Peter's eyes were fixed on Jesus, he walked on the water the same way Jesus did. Peter wasn't thinking about walking on the water. He was just thinking about getting to Jesus. And with each step that he took, he was completely safe and had nothing to worry about. But the moment he took his eyes off of Jesus and started looking around him, then he started to sink. So if you're going to walk towards Jesus so that you can walk on water, it won't work. Because you'll be looking around you all the time to see if you're really walking on the water. Therefore, take no thought saying, what shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or with what shall we be clothed? For your heavenly Father knows that you have need of all these things. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things shall be added unto you. This isn't always easy to do, because we can't see the future that we're investing in, but we couldn't see the future we were investing in when we were in elementary school either. So whether we can see it or not doesn't change the reality of that future. And I can't stress this enough, folks, because as I'm doing this, podcast, I'm reflecting back on my own mistakes, and I can see every place I attempted to invest in the kingdom of God for the sole purpose of getting all my needs met here, and I kept looking around me to see if they were getting met. It won't work that way. You have to completely give it all up to God before he starts meeting those needs. Once you do that, then you begin to walk on water. Every need gets met right on time, sometimes right up to the millisecond you need it met. But you don't have to pay attention to that because you're not invested in those needs anymore. You're not their slave anymore. You're God's slave, and all those needs are God's problem now. Any need that God chooses not to meet really isn't a need. If the cable bill doesn't get paid, then you turn it off. If it does get paid, then you get to keep it, and you can see that as a personal gift from God. If the phone bill doesn't get paid, then you turn it off, and you say, Well, Lord, I don't understand, but evidently for some reason you don't want me to have the phone this month. That's how you look at it. Now, am I saying not to pay your bills and spend all your money on something else? No, don't put words in my mouth. Pay your bills. I'm just saying don't make it a worry or a concern. Don't be tied down to fear of not getting those bills paid. Your bills are not your bills anymore. They're God's bills. If the rent doesn't get paid, then you move. Your life doesn't belong to you anymore. That's the whole attitude behind this because now you're single-minded towards heaven. You're now investing in your life that's in heaven, not the one that's down here. But Josh, what will people say? Well, they're going to say all kinds of stuff. Who cares? Yeah, but Josh, aren't we supposed to be examples to the world? How will God look in their eyes if those who give their lives to him lose their phone, lose their cable, get their lights turned off, and lose their apartment? Aren't we supposed to be light unto the world and salt of the earth? Well, you bet. And that can't happen if people think your joy comes from all your bills being paid, can they? You can tell people that God's the reason for your joy all you want to. It'll fall on deaf ears if they know you're making a six-figure salary. 
What really impresses the world is when you've got absolutely nothing to be excited about, but in your eyes is a peace that passes all understanding. And you greet each morning with a smile on your face because each day is just one more day closer to that future you've been investing in. And you don't wake up depressed because that future isn't here yet. You wake up excited because it's another day on the earth that you get to spend investing in your future in heaven. And folks, this doesn't mean becoming a missionary to get out there and get people saved. That's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about you continually seeking first the kingdom of God, continually building on that relationship with Jesus Christ, continuing to know his word, continuing to invest in a relationship with other Christians, not to impress them or anyone else, but to please your Father which sees all of this in secret so that he can reward you openly when you get to heaven. You wade through those trials and tribulations. And I'll offer you this friendly warning. They will be coming. Because Satan can't stand it when someone is at peace for giving their lives completely over to the Lord. Those demonic attacks will come. They may come in the form of tough times. They may come in the form of troubled relationships or personal loss. They may come in the form of close loved ones hurting like you've never seen them hurt before. But you've got to remember, if they're Christians, then they're earning their own rewards too. The more they suffer at Satan's hand for righteousness' sake, the bigger and more glamorous their rewards in heaven are. But in the meantime, Satan may use all of that to knock the wind out of you for a couple of years. We're at war, and the planet Earth is under enemy occupation. This is serious business. We won't float through life wearing white sheets and patting people on the head saying, Bless you, child. We're at war. We're at war against an incredible supernatural enemy who's in this world. But don't ever forget 1 John chapter 4, verse 4, where it says, You are of God. You belong to him. And you have already defeated the agents of the Antichrist and he who is in the world, because he who lives in you is greater and mightier than he who is in the world. Forge ahead. Wade through those trials. And let the mud and the blood of demonic attacks get between your teeth, constantly advancing forward, gaining that extra credit and those bonuses waiting for you up in heaven. You stop to look around you to see where you are, then you're going to get clobbered, just like Peter did while he was walking on water towards Jesus. Keep your eyes on the Lord and not your circumstances. Therefore, take no thought, saying, What shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or with what shall we be clothed? For your heavenly Father knows that you have need of all these things. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things shall be added unto you. You know, this is true not only on an individual level, but on a national level as well. The pilgrims didn't come over here to establish a nation. They came over here to escape religious persecution. The founding fathers, they weren't trying to establish a nation. They weren't thinking about all of these high ambitions. They just wanted our little group that was over here to be left alone so they could seek first the kingdom of God. That was their ambition. That was their goal. George Washington said it's the duty of all nations to acknowledge the providence of Almighty God and to obey His will and to be grateful for His benefits and humbly implore for His protection and favor. Folks, the president said that. Can you imagine hearing a president say that today? The president of the United States actually said that out loud, publicly, before Congress. He said it's the duty of all nations to acknowledge the providence of Almighty God and to obey His will. Wow. And it was because of that goal that Satan did everything he could to wipe us out, be it severe winters, plagues of diseases, then religious cults invaded the land, ignorance and intolerance in some places, and then finally an invasion of the British Army. 
But overall, the colonies were made up of people who were seeking first the kingdom of God. And because they did, they walked on water. They survived the winters, they survived the diseases, they matured from religious ignorance and intolerance, and then they finally beat the British army. A bunch of farmers beat a well-trained military army. And as long as we kept seeking first the kingdom of God, the country flourished. Wealth increased like it never had before. Education increased. The medical field increased. The sciences increased. Technology increased. We just kept walking on water seeking first the kingdom of God until our faith was tested once again, and that time we failed. It was known as the Great Depression. We had survived calamities much more severe than the Great Depression, but we got so used to walking on water that at that moment in time, we began slipping from keeping our eyes on Jesus, and we belly ached and complained. Instead of seeking first the kingdom of God, we sought the kingdom of Washington, D.C. We acknowledged the providence of almighty government and implored for government's protection and favor. And thus, Social Security was born. They didn't become atheists or anything. We were still a spiritual people. But it's like Jesus said earlier, you can't serve both God and wealth. The generation of the Great Depression tried. And that's when our country started slipping down a slope of trying to serve both God and wealth. And as the 20th century continued to roll by, with each passing year, more and more people chose to serve wealth instead of God. And now we're at the point where even believing in God is made fun of. Government pays for almost everything, and inadequately, I might add. But we still choose to trust government over God to pay for our education, our retirement, our medical expenses, and it still isn't enough. We still want government to pay for more. Now, our deficits are impossible to pay back. We're on the brink of national bankruptcy. Our courts are corrupt. Our politicians are corrupt. Our pastors are corrupt. Our teachers are corrupt. Education is in shambles. The voters are ignorant and complacent. Kids are killing kids. And those of us who are trying to figure out a way to get things back to the way they were are still missing the point. We keep talking about the Constitution. We keep talking about morality. We keep talking about laws and justice. We keep talking about the characteristics of a nation that's seeking first the kingdom of God without actually talking about seeking first the kingdom of God. I did a political talk show for three years and published a political blog. I threw it away. It was useless. Bringing up the Constitution is like handing a flashlight to a blind man, or what's worse, handing a flashlight to a man who chooses to live in darkness. We don't understand. We keep thinking if we expose corruption enough, people will figure it out. Acorn was exposed under a sting operation that proved Acorn workers were willing to peddle underage prostitution from illegal immigrants. All of it paid for by tax dollars to promote their own political candidates of choice. Afterwards, those who performed the sting operation were charged with a crime and brought to court, and the corrupt Acorn workers who were exposed were declared not guilty. So we beat our chests. We wave the U.S. Constitution in people's face. We talk about getting back to what the Founding Fathers wanted without ever bringing up why the Founding Fathers wanted what they wanted. The conservatives who think we can straighten things out without bringing God into the equation are not only wrong, but part of the problem. We learned when Jesus was being tempted by Satan in the desert that Satan actually has authority over the kingdoms of the earth. And he chooses to give them to whomever he wills. The only time that's not true is when a particular kingdom of the earth is seeking first the kingdom of God. Then Satan can't give it to anybody. But when they don't seek first the kingdom of God, then Satan has authority over it and can give it to whomever he wills. So if he wants to give it temporarily to a corrupt politician, he can, and he has. And all this leads back to Second Chronicles chapter 7, verse 14, where God said, If my people who are called by my name, not the world, but his people, those called by his name, 
If my people who are called by my name shall humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then will I hear from heaven and will forgive their sin and will heal their land. But unfortunately, the majority of the people in this nation who are called by his name are trying to serve both God and wealth. And Jesus clearly says here that you can't do that. Most of our nation's so-called Christians today have become fat and lazy and at best might pray for the country, but they won't seek his face. They want their pastors to bring God's face to them once a week and be done with it. They won't seek first the kingdom of God because they're too busy seeking the American dream. And all of our political talk shows and conservative blogs and tea parties, we keep trying to teach the country how to walk on water without seeking first the kingdom of God. And you can't do that. But we continue to try, and that's why things are only going to get worse. So now, more than ever, on an individual basis, we should pay very close attention to what Jesus is saying here. Let's back up a little bit to keep the flow of context. Chapter 6, verse 24 Jesus says, No man can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or else he will hold to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and mammon. Therefore I say to you, take no thought for your life, what you shall eat or what you shall drink, nor yet for your body, what you shall put on. Is not the life more than meat and the body more than the clothing? Behold the birds of the air, for they don't reap and they don't sow, nor do they gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not much better than they? Which of you, by taking thought, can add one cubit to your stature? And why take thought for clothing? Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow. They don't toil, neither do they spin. And yet I tell you that even Solomon in all of his glory was not arrayed like one of these. Wherefore, if God so clothe the grass of the field, which today is, and tomorrow is cast into the oven, shall he not much more clothe you, O you of little faith? Therefore take no thought, saying, What shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or with what shall we be clothed? For your heavenly Father knows that you have need of all these things. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things shall be added unto you. Therefore take no thought for tomorrow, for tomorrow shall take thought for the things of itself. Sufficient unto today is the evil thereof. What do you know, folks? We actually made our way through chapter 6. Now we can hit chapter 7. Verse 1. Judge not that you be not judged. For with what judgment you judge, you shall be judged. And with what measure you meet, it shall be measured to you again. This verse is probably more famous than John 3.16 because it gets quoted all the time by people who've never in their entire life even seen the inside of a Bible. As a matter of fact, this single verse is the favorite verse of atheists, Wiccans, homosexuals. Just about everybody loves this verse. We all love it, but the world really loves it. It's their favorite. The Antichrist himself will probably quote this verse to Jesus just before Jesus defeats him and puts him in chains. So first, let's talk about what it actually means, and then we'll talk about what it doesn't mean. The point of this verse, in the context of the whole sermon, is that we, as followers of Christ should forgive others the same way we ourselves have been forgiven by God. That's the point of this verse. That forgiveness was not earned. It was given to us out of an unconditional love and mercy. We have escaped judgment because of an act of love on God's part, not on ours, but on God's part. Therefore, we have no right to withhold forgiveness from other people who have wronged us. 
because no one has ever come close to wronging us the way we wronged God. And God forgave us. We, as members of the human race, we took the title deed to the planet Earth that he created for us. And we put it in the hands of Satan in the Garden of Eden. But God forgave us. Then he gave us the Ten Commandments. Then we broke the Ten Commandments and he forgave us. Then he became a man and came to the planet Earth. And he healed the sick. He restored limbs to the crippled. He gave sight to the blind. And after he did, we spit on him. We punched him in the face. We tore off his beard. We slapped a crown of thorns on his head. We put nails in his hands and we hung him on a cross to die. He forgave us, folks. As a species, by all rights, we should be dead. But we're not. We're still here. And as followers of Christ, not only are we not dead, we've been promised eternal life, blessings, and riches in the kingdom of God. So that's what this verse means. After all the forgiveness that's been given to us for all the horrible things we've done, where do we get off self-righteously judging and condemning others? as though somehow we're better than them. No, we're not. If we are, it's only by God's grace and God's mercy, certainly not by anything we've ever done. So the whole business of judging and condemning is in God's hands, not ours. And that's what this verse means. But there's a big difference between judging and using good judgment. Completely different ballgame. This verse does not mean we're to be blind and not recognize what's good and what's bad, or what's right and what's wrong. We are called to condemn sin. We're not called to condemn sinners because we're all sinners. But we are called to condemn sin. Condemning and recognizing sin for being sin is healthy. It's a good thing. It's healthy on an individual level, and it's healthy as a society. To not recognize sin for what it is is dangerous. We're not called to condemn people, but we are called to condemn sin. We shouldn't judge or condemn the drunk driver. We should forgive the drunk driver. But that doesn't change the nature of what drunk driving is. So choosing not to get into the car with a drunk driver isn't a judgment against him. It's a judgment against the nature of what drunk driving is. You're not worried about him killing you. You're worried about being killed in an accident because of his drunk driving. It's completely different. We shouldn't judge or condemn the homosexual. We should forgive the homosexual, but that doesn't change the nature of what homosexuality is. God said it was a sin. It's a psychological and sexual perversion, and every society and history that has ever embraced it has fallen. That's not an opinion. Those are historical facts of reality. Am I judging the homosexual? No. He might think so, but I'm not. I don't know his story. I'm not in his shoes. We've all made choices, good and bad, and I am no better than he is. But none of that changes the nature of what homosexuality is. We shouldn't judge or condemn the pedophile. We should forgive the pedophile. But that doesn't change the nature of what pedophilia is. So choosing not to hire a pedophile to coach your Little League baseball team isn't a judgment against him. It's a judgment against the horrible dangers of pedophilia itself. We're not called to condemn sinners, but we are called to condemn sin. So when Jesus says, judge not, that you be not judged. For with what judgment you judge, you shall be judged. And with what measure you meet, it shall be measured to you again. What Jesus is forbidding in this verse isn't the judgment of sin, but a judgmental, condemning spirit against people without mercy and without love. One of the more recent examples of this is the Westboro Baptist Church where members of its congregation started picketing around public places with picket signs that said, God hates fags. This is the kind of behavior that Jesus condemned. 
if those individual members of Westboro Baptist Church are really Christians, and that's a very big if, then they're in for a big surprise when they get to the judgment seat. God hates the sin, but he loves the sinner. He hates the sin because he knows where it really came from. He knows why it's there presently. He knows of the pain that caused it, and he knows what brought it about, and he knows of the continual pain that it causes. And that goes not just for homosexuality, but every sin. That's why he hates the sin. But he loves the sinner. He died for the sinner. But on the other hand, you've got other churches that are on the other side of the spectrum that are just as wrong. They're inviting homosexuals to come to their church to get married. Who are we to judge? Let's let them get married with a Christian wedding. My gosh, folks, I can't imagine anything more twisted than that. No place in the Bible is homosexuality condoned. It may be forgiven because of the cross, but it's not condoned. God won't recognize that marriage. Anyway, let's keep moving. Judge not that you be not judged. For with what judgment you judge, you shall be judged. And with what measure you meet, it shall be measured to you again. And why do you behold the mote that's in your brother's eye, but consider not the beam that's in your own eye? How will you say to your brother, let me pull out the mote out of your eye while a beam is in your own eye? You hypocrite. First cast out the beam out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to cast out the mote out of your brother's eye. That one's a lot of fun to read, folks. doesn't require too much commentary. It's self-explanatory. But notice Jesus isn't against your helping to remove the speck in your brother's eye. Just make sure you've got the plank that's stuck in yours out first. I'm a smoker that's almost quit smoking. I used to smoke a pack and a half a day. That's roughly 30 cigarettes a day. I'm down to only smoking between five and seven cigarettes a day now, hoping to be completely free this summer. But before I started cutting back, I remember... A close family member counseling me on the health risks that I was taking by smoking cigarettes. He got into the dangers against heart disease, heart attack, stroke, and then after he went through all of that, then he really laid a guilt trip on me and talked about how the human body of a Christian is called the temple of God. But the whole time he was telling me this, all I could think about was how overweight he was. I mean, he was huge. He ate four giant meals a day. This guy literally filled up more than half the front seat of the car we were sitting in while he was telling me all this. And he's more than 20 years older than me. And while he was going through all of this, all I wanted to do was say, what do you think you're doing to your temple? When you've stopped eating four giant meals a day and have lost a couple hundred pounds, then you can talk to me about smoking cigarettes. Of course, his eating problem didn't take away from the truth of what he was telling me about my smoking problem. But at the same time, it's kind of difficult to listen to a truth bearer who doesn't listen to his own truth. And that's the whole point of what Jesus is saying here. Why do you behold the mote that's in your brother's eye, but consider not the beam that's in your own eye? How will you say to your brother, let me pull out the mote out of your eye while a beam is in your own eye? You hypocrite. First cast out the beam out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to cast out the mote out of your brother's eye. Give not that which is holy to the dogs. Neither cast your pearls before swine, lest they trample them under their feet and turn again and rend you. Folks, this is a famous verse, but what does it mean? What Jesus is talking about here is amplified by Peter in 2 Peter chapter 2, verse 22, where Peter brings up the old proverb about the dog that returns to his own vomit and the pig that was washed but then returns to the mud and wallows in it again. In other words, don't waste your time. Not only is it a waste of time, but it's dangerous. He said, don't cast your pearls before swine, lest they trample them under their feet and turn again and rend you. Boy, have I seen this online with debates between Christians and atheists. There are some atheists who are atheists because they can't help it. 
They've lived a life in which what they've experienced has brought them to hold the conclusions that they presently hold. Now, we know they're wrong, so for their sake, because they're angry, they're hurting, we try to talk with them, not to win any debates, but maybe help them see something that maybe they haven't thought about before, because we know that God loves them. But there are other atheists, they're atheists because of what Jesus said in John chapter 3 to Nicodemus. He said of them, the light has come into the world, and they chose, key word there, they chose to love the darkness more than the light because, another key word, because their deeds were evil. These people don't disbelieve out of error or by deception. They're not deceived. They choose not to believe on purpose because they love the darkness more than the light. And after doing that for several years, they actually come to the point where they hate the light. They're self-deluded. This isn't deception. It's a choice. And these are the atheists who are the most angry, the most vicious, the most hateful people you will find online. Many Christians try to befriend these people. And they get along just fine and build what seems to be healthy relationships. But watch out. Don't you dare bring up God. Because if you do, in the twinkling of an eye, they'll turn from being your closest friend to your most bitter enemy, complete with mocking insults, name-calling, slanderous accusations. It's like holding up a cross to a vampire. They go from being elegant and refined to becoming hissing, venomous snakes that bite. And it doesn't make any difference what you've done to prove to them that you're their friend. You could be their best friend for years. You bring up God, you bring up the Bible, you bring up any of that stuff, you're going to get bit. They won't just disagree with you, they're going to bite you and they're going to tear you to shreds. Give not that which is holy to the dogs, neither cast your pearls before swine, lest they trample them under their feet and turn again and rend you. Ask and it shall be given you. Seek and you shall find. Knock and it shall be opened unto you. For everyone that asks receives, and he that seeks finds. And to him that knocks, it shall be opened. What man is there among you, whom if his son asks for bread, would give him a stone? Or if he asks for fish, will give him a serpent? If you then, being evil as you are, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more shall your Father, which is in heaven, give good things to them that ask him? This is a great set of verses here, folks. Jesus actually tells us to ask God for whatever it is. Which is kind of strange, because earlier he told us that the Father already knows what we need before we ask him. So why is he telling us here to ask him anyway? So that we'll know where it came from, and that's a direct response to your prayer. Sometimes God actually withholds something because he's waiting on you to ask him. Ask, and it shall be given you. Seek, and you shall find. Knock, and it shall be opened unto you. These verses are famous because they sound so easy, and a lot of people have tried them to see if they're true and get upset when they don't work. But the reason why they don't seem to work is because sometimes God's answer is to wait. For every verse in the Bible that tells us to ask the Lord, there's three telling us to wait upon the Lord. Other times God's answer is, you know what, I can see why you'd ask for that, but I know what you really want, so I've got a better idea. We don't like hearing that. But if we knew what God knew, we'd be on the same page as he is. That's why we're to trust and lean on him and not lean on our own understanding. But I think the main reason why these verses disappoint people is because most of the time they're taken out of the context of this whole sermon. We like to highlight verses like these and have them framed on walls. Ask and it shall be given. Seek and you shall find. So all we do is ask and seek, ask and seek, ask and seek, and grab a hold of anything and everything that's in front of us. And we claim it to be from God. Or worse, we ask, seek, and then don't find, and then either get mad at God or mad at the Bible and then stop believing it. But folks, this promise is another conditional promise. You can't take these feel-good verses out of the Bible and use them like magic words. They are part of a whole speech that's connected. 
First of all, this sermon is addressed to followers of Christ. If you're not a follower of Christ, this promise isn't for you. And in the context of the whole sermon, a prerequisite to this promise is that you're seeking first the kingdom of God. If you're not seeking first the kingdom of God, then when you ask, it will not be given to you. When you seek, you shall not find. When you knock, the door will not be opened to you. So these promises are null and void if you're trying to serve both God and mammon, or not seeking first the kingdom of God. Boy, have I learned this lesson the hard way. But if you are seeking first the kingdom of God, and I mean if you really are, then ask and it shall be given you. Seek and you shall find. Knock and it shall be opened unto you. For everyone that asks receives, and he that seeks finds. And to him that knocks it shall be opened. What man is there among you whom if his son asked for bread would give him a stone? Or if he asked for fish, will he give him a serpent? If you then, being evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more shall your Father which is in heaven give good things to them which ask him? Therefore, all things whatsoever you wish that men should do to you, do even so to them, for this is the law and the prophets. And this is where we get the golden rule, folks. Do unto others as you would have them do unto you. It isn't do unto others as they currently do unto you. It's do unto others as you'd have them do unto you. Simply put, just treat others the way you want to be treated. If you don't have a problem with treating others a certain way or speaking to them a certain way, then don't get upset or offended when they treat you or speak to you the same way you treat and speak to them. Or what's better, just treat and speak to them the way you'd have them treat and speak to you. Now, what's neat about this, though, is that Jesus here links this to the law and the prophets. What's that all about? Simply put, if you were to do to others what you'd wish them to do to you, and not do to others what you don't want them to do to you, then in the long run, you'd be keeping the law and the prophets. Jesus is saying, this pretty much sums it all up right here. And he continues and says, enter in at the straight gate. For wide is the gate, and broad is the way that leads to destruction, and many there be which go in. Because straight is the gate, and narrow is the way which leads to life, and few there be that find it. Folks, this is Jesus' direct response to George W. Bush when he told a crowd of Muslims, I believe all the world prays to the same God. The only way to life is through Jesus Christ. And that little fact upsets a lot of people today. Even some Christian groups are more comfortable telling people that their way is just one of many ways. The first mistake they make is assuming that their way is their way. It's not their way. It's his way. We don't stumble around in life trying to find our own way. Jesus comes down here, picks us up, and carries us the way. You're either in his arms being carried or you're on your own. So all these people out there who claim that there are many paths to heaven, they're wrong. There is only one path to heaven, and that's through Jesus Christ. Now, there are many paths to Jesus' arms. Some people get saved at an early age. Others don't get saved till late in adulthood. Some of them just hear a song and welcome him in. Others have to go through a lifetime of trials and tribulations before he gets their attention. Some people are intellectuals who God reaches through historical evidence and scientific discovery. Others are emotional and require some kind of experience or feeling. Whatever it takes, Jesus gets through. But once he gets through, then you have a choice. It's either his way, which is the only way, or it's your way, which goes nowhere. And Jesus here says, Broad is the way that leads to destruction, and many there be which go in. So if you're going a way that's popular and everybody's going that way, you're probably going the wrong way. Beware of false prophets which come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly they are ravening wolves. You'll know them by their fruits. 
And you can take that verse, folks, and tie it to 2 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 14. When Paul brings up wolves in sheep's clothing, he says Satan himself masquerades as an angel of light. Therefore, it's no surprise that Satan's servants would masquerade as ministers of righteousness. Just because somebody calls themselves a prophet of God, just because somebody's got their name in lights in front of a church somewhere, just because someone sets up a website and has beautiful pictures of crosses and paintings of Jesus and doilied up Bible verses sprinkled all over the place, that doesn't mean they're of God. Don't forget, folks, we're at war. Satan has double agents infiltrating our camps, and he's real good at it. Beware of false prophets which come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly they are ravening wolves. You'll know them by their fruits. Do men gather grapes of thorns or figs of thistles? Even so, every good tree brings forth good fruit, but a corrupt tree brings forth evil fruit. A good tree cannot bring forth evil fruit, neither can a corrupt tree bring forth good fruit. Every tree that doesn't bring forth good fruit is hewn down and cast into the fire. Wherefore, by their fruits you shall know them. See, this portion of Jesus' sermon would seem to contradict the part where he said, Judge not, lest ye be judged, if we're to believe world's interpretation of that verse. Because here, Jesus is labeling fruit as either good fruit or bad fruit. And then he tells us, you'll know a tree by its fruit. Now, folks, let's slow down for these next two verses. Because they are very spooky verses. What Jesus is about to say here has become the source of a lot of division and confusion, and fear. And I'm going to suggest to you that most of us don't know what these verses are really all about. Because we've all been bombarded with theological debates and assumptions that cloud over what Jesus is really saying. So let's look at this slowly and carefully to see what Jesus is really saying here. He said, Not everyone that says to me, Lord, Lord, shall enter into the kingdom of heaven, but he that does the will of my Father which is in heaven. Many will say to me in that day, Lord, Lord, have we not prophesied in your name? And in your name haven't we cast out demons? And in your name done many wonderful works? And then I will profess to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you that work iniquity. Now there are three prominent views as to what Jesus is talking about. The view that we hear most often by zealous religious groups is that Jesus is telling you that not everyone who gets saved will stay saved. They believe Jesus is saying that a person can become saved, do a lot of good in his name, and then for whatever reason backslide from their faith and then lose their salvation. That at one time in their lives they were all right. They were on the winning team and they did all kinds of wonderful good, but didn't stick it out all the way. So that when their time came to go to heaven, Jesus turned them away. But I think that view is easily refuted and destroyed by Jesus himself. And what he says to those that he turns away, he tells them, I never knew you. He doesn't tell them that he knew them once, but then lost touch. He said he never knew them. So if this verse is talking about salvation, then these people were never saved to begin with, because he never knew them. Which leads us to another view of what these verses mean. If this verse is talking about salvation, then what Jesus is saying is that actions are not what save you. Works done in Jesus' name don't save you. Prophesying in his name doesn't save you. Casting out demons in his name doesn't save you. Doing all kinds of wonderful works in his name, they don't save you. Let's read these verses slowly and see if that's an accurate interpretation of what this is all about. Jesus says, Not everyone that says to me, Lord, Lord, shall enter into the kingdom of heaven, but he that does the will of my Father which is in heaven. What is the will of his Father, folks? 
Jesus tells us in John chapter 6, verse 40. He says, This is the will of him that sent me, that everyone which sees the Son and believes on him may have everlasting life, and I will raise him up at the last day. That's the will of the Father. These guys that Jesus turned away were all consumed with performing works. They were trying to work their way into heaven. But what is the work that the Father demands? Jesus tells us that in John chapter 6, verse 29. He says, this is the work of God, that you believe on him whom he has sent. Pretty straightforward. Many will say to me in that day, Lord, Lord, have we not prophesied in your name? And in your name haven't we cast out demons? And in your name done many wonderful works? And then I will profess to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you that work iniquity. The word iniquity means broken law. No matter how hard you try, you're a breaker of the law, unless you believe in the one whom God sent. Then you're clean, because he paid the penalty. If you're not clean, it's because you don't believe in the one whom God sent, which means he never knew you. Now that interpretation of what these verses mean has been the prominent view of most conservative Bible scholars, and it's also been the view that I've held for a very long time, because the doctrine of that view is consistent with the rest of the scripture. Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 and 9 spell it out very clear. It says, For by grace are you saved, through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. That's right out of Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 and 9. And after reading that passage in Ephesians, boy, it sure does sound like these guys who Jesus turned away were boasting. But Lord, look what we did. We did this and we did that. It's not about works. Where's the faith? You can't have faith in someone you don't know. That's why Jesus said, I never knew you. We're not saved by works, we're saved by faith in the grace of our Savior, who we know. That's the whole New Testament in a nutshell. But, but, I'm going to suggest to you that the entire debate about salvation, whether you can lose it or not, whether it's gained by faith or by works or by both, all of those arguments are arguments that have been debated so loudly and for so long that they have blinded us from seeing what this verse is really saying. There is another interpretation of what these verses mean that I've just recently become aware of. Get ready to be blown away. Because I was. Because all of us are guilty of carrying assumptions because of presupposed ideas. And the longer we carry those assumptions, the harder it is to see what's really there. Yes, it is true that we are saved by faith and grace alone. That is certainly true. And once you've received that salvation, you are permanently stamped and sealed by the Holy Spirit. The book of Romans gets into all of that. So you cannot lose your salvation. And that salvation itself is gained by faith alone in Jesus' work, not your works. But where do we get the idea that what Jesus is talking about here has got anything to do with salvation? And I remember the first time I heard that question posed about this verse, I felt my brain explode because I had to do a double take. I went back and read the entire Sermon on the Mount that leads up to these controversial passages, and then I was like, oh my gosh, I've been shell-shocked by the salvation debate for so long that it never occurred to me that this verse here might not even have anything to do with salvation. Because what has the entire Sermon on the Mount been focused on, folks? Jesus covered a lot of ground, but what's the consistent underlying theme been all about? The coming kingdom and the distribution of rewards. Jesus says, not everyone that says to me, Lord, Lord, shall enter into the kingdom of heaven. What is the kingdom of heaven? We talked all about that in our session from Matthew chapter 5. The kingdom of God and the kingdom of heaven are not the same kingdoms. The kingdom of God is heaven itself. It's where the Father's throne is. It's where all of us immediately go when we die. But the kingdom of heaven 
is where the sun's throne is. It's the rule of the Messiah over the planet Earth. That doesn't exist yet. Right now, the son is sitting on his father's throne. And all of that's made clear in our session of Matthew chapter 5. Jesus himself makes that distinction as you go through Matthew chapter 5. And it's this coming kingdom which will be on the earth that's been in the background throughout this entire sermon. In chapter 5, he said, The meek shall inherit the earth. And when he told his disciples how to pray, the first thing in there, Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And then between all of this, Jesus focuses not on how to get saved. He's addressing followers of Christ. It's assumed that they're already saved. So he doesn't focus on how to get saved. He's been focusing on how to get rewards and how to keep from losing rewards, right? All the way back in chapter 6, he said, When you give money, don't do it before men to be glorified by men, because if you do, you've already received your reward. When you pray, don't do it before men to be glorified by men, because if you do, you've already received your reward. When you fast, don't show off to everyone how hungry you are to be glorified by men, because if you do, you've already received your reward. Whatever you do, do it in secret for the Father only, so that he will reward you openly. And when you lay up for yourselves treasures, don't lay up for yourselves treasures on the earth, but lay them up instead in heaven. So the constant theme behind all of this is building up for yourselves rewards and keeping your inheritance. What is our inheritance, folks? Romans chapter 8, verse 17 tells us we're adopted children into the family of God. And if we're his children, then we're his heirs also and joint heirs with Christ. We're heirs of kings, folks. What do the children of kings inherit? They inherit the kingdom. But that inheritance is conditional. You can blow it. Romans chapter 8, verse 17 clearly puts that stipulation in there. We must suffer with Christ if we're to share in his glory. You can't blow your salvation, but you can blow your inheritance. And these verses that cause so much confusion and controversy could be nothing more than the climax of that whole theme. Jesus has been telling us about the coming kingdom, about our inheritance, about our rewards, and how you can blow that inheritance and lose those rewards by doing the right things, but for the wrong reasons. If you do it for the honor and glory among men, then you're blowing it. The kingdom of heaven, the future kingdom of the Messiah on the planet earth, is part of that inheritance that we can blow. So Jesus says, many will say to me in that day, Lord, Lord, have we not prophesied in your name? And in your name haven't we cast out demons? And in your name done many wonderful works? And then I will profess to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you that work iniquity. In other words, in keeping with the context of the whole sermon, they prophesied in his name, but for the glory among men. They cast out demons in his name and did many wonderful works, but all for the glory and honor among men. Jesus said all along, if you do that, you've already received your reward. Many will say to me, in that day, what day is he talking about? The day it all finally happens, the day that Jesus sets up his kingdom, the day that our works are judged, not our sins. All of our sins have already been judged. All that was wiped clean at the cross. This is a judgment of our works. Did we do it for man or did we do it for God? Jesus said, many will say to me in that day, Lord, Lord, have we not prophesied in your name and in your name haven't we cast out demons and in your name done many wonderful works? And then I will profess to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you that work iniquity. Interesting interpretation of these last verses that I find extremely fascinating because it ties so many other passages of Scripture into this. In the next chapter of Matthew, chapter 8, Jesus talks about those who are children of the kingdom but who are cast into outer darkness. What does that mean? How can you be children of the kingdom, which means you're saved, but then be cast into outer darkness? 
People make assumptions that outer darkness means hell, but that's not what it says. That's an assumption that doesn't have any biblical weight to it. And when you get into the original language of Matthew chapter 8, it's actually the darkness outside. Not the outer darkness, but the darkness outside. Outside of what? Outside of where the source of light is. What's the source of light during the reign of Jesus on the earth? It's Jesus himself. He's the source of all light. So being a part of that kingdom is being part of that light. And that is an inheritance that's ours as adopted children of the kingdom. But inheritances can be blown. You can't lose your salvation, but you can blow your inheritance. And you can lose your position that's on the inside of the kingdom. Not outside of heaven, but outside the kingdom of heaven. That's a special inheritance that you can blow. Now, I don't believe those who blow it are permanently separated from the kingdom, and that's a whole other conversation that's way too in-depth and complicated to get into here. The point is, there is some credence to the view that what Jesus is talking about here in the last part of the Sermon on the Mount is about those who blew their inheritance. Depart from me, I never knew you. You can be saved, be adopted into the family of God, and spend your entire life on the earth blowing your inheritance because you're comfortable with fire insurance. You're not worried about hell anymore, so you just float through life but never really get to know the one who saved you. You're safe from hell. But when Jesus comes back, you don't get to be on the inside of things because he never knew you. Interesting view. Do your own homework. Pray about it and come to your own conclusions. Let's finish this off. Jesus says, Therefore, whosoever hears these sayings of mine and does them, I will liken him unto a wise man which built his house upon a rock. And the rain descended, and the floods came, and the winds blew and beat upon that house, but it fell not, for it was founded upon a rock. And every one that hear these sayings of mine and doesn't do them shall be likened unto a foolish man who built his house upon the sand. And the rain descended, and the floods came, and the winds blew, and beat upon that house, and it fell. And great was the fall of it. In other words, anyone who hears his sayings and does them is smart. By doing what he says, you're helping yourself, you're protecting yourself, you're doing what's best for yourself. Something else here, Jesus says it's like building your house laid on a rock foundation, whose house is protected when the flood arose. Notice it didn't say that if you built the house on the rock, you would never be flooded. I think that's interesting. Doesn't make any difference whether you put your house on a rock or not. That house is going to be bombarded with a flood at one time or another. In other words, no matter who you are, saved or not, disciple or not, life has its troubles. But if you build your house on the rock, there's a foundation there, and you'll survive. That's the whole point. And there's something else here. From Genesis to Revelation, wherever the word rock appears, it symbolizes Jesus Christ. You don't see it when you're up close to a single verse like we are here, but dig out a Strong's Concordance, look up the word rock, and you'll see it. It'll give you goosebumps. All throughout Psalms, says, The Lord is my rock and my fortress. He alone is my rock and my salvation, and so on. The first place the word rock appears is in Exodus 17, verse 6, where God told Moses to hit the rock with his staff so that water would come out of it and give drink to the thirsting Israelites who were wandering around in the desert. The symbolism there is intriguing because what does water symbolize? The Holy Spirit. What did Moses' staff symbolize? God's judgment. So a symbol of God's judgment was to smite a symbol of Jesus Christ so that a symbol of the Holy Spirit would come out and end the thirst of the Israelites. Hmm. Sounds like a prophecy of Jesus' first coming, doesn't it? Later on in Numbers chapter 20... 
the Israelites get thirsty again, God told Moses to speak to the rock. Not hit it, but speak to the rock so that it would bring forth water. Don't hit it. Just speak to it. And this was to symbolize Jesus' second coming, where he isn't smitten, but asked by Israel to return. Of course, Moses got mad at the Israelites, forgot what God told them, and he hit the rock anyway and ruined the prophetic model, which is why God got mad at him. To make sure the prophetic symbolism was still intact, God had to punish Moses to drive the point home and keep the symbolic model. Jesus is smitten once and only once, and once and for all during his first coming. But before his second coming, Jesus is humbly asked by Israel to come. Not to be smitten, but to be worshipped as the Messiah. And I think neat little surprises like that in the scripture are a lot of fun. But anyway, Jesus says, Therefore, whosoever hears these things of mine and does them, I will liken him unto a wise man, which built his house upon a rock. And the rain descended, and the floods came, and the winds blew, and beat upon that house, and it fell not. For it was founded upon a rock. And every one that hear these sayings of mine and doesn't do them shall be likened unto a foolish man which built his house upon the sand. And the rain descended, and the floods came, and the winds blew, and beat upon that house, and it fell. And great was the fall of it. And it came to pass, when Jesus had ended these sayings, the people were astonished at his doctrine, for he taught them as one having authority, and not as the scribes. Yeah, no kidding. Well, that does it, folks. We finally managed to get through the entire Sermon on the Mount. So let's everybody give a loud, we'll continue this synchronized study of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John next week. Until then, we're out of here. Take care, folks.